the English value hierarchy, the US, and when I say English, I mean US, Canadian, Australian, this value hierarchy, which makes up our way of life or the English way, emerged in an implicit process. We've never understood the psychotechnology that cultivated the value hierarchy in the first place. It's all been implicit to us. It operates behind the scenes. For over a century, this hierarchy has been under siege. Crucial traditions that were imitated, father to son, passed generation to, to generation. Fundamental psychotechnologies we took for granted were given up, were abandoned out of ignorance in the face of prolonged attack because it has been under siege. What that means is, is this cut our people off from what makes them a people. The narrative order, the telos, the why, and the value hierarchy, the way, and the psychotechnology. The how, the practices. Englishmen, US, Canadian have been convinced they're a multicultural amalgam. That they're not a people at all. That they have no tradition or value hierarchy that's distinct to them. It became so second nature. We didn't need to articulate it like the Germans or Continentals did. It, it was in our bones, as Bertrand Russell said. This situation has contributed to, has perpetuated the nihilism that we're currently experiencing, this lack of meaning. But the thing is, it's everywhere around you. You just can't see it. It's never been defined. It's not like Bible study. It's never been explicated and utilized pedagogically. It's operated behind the scenes. It functions behind the scenes. It has all these implicit functions that were crucial to our culture, yet we've abandoned them because we didn't really realize what it was or what it was for. Yet those psychotechnologies, those practices, those rituals, those traditions, all of those things, for all intents and purposes, that might as well be new inventions that are ready to be explicated and utilized by people. The problem we're facing is conceptual, but it's also about cultivation and curation. So first I'll talk about the conceptual problem. What constitutes the value hierarchy is a way, the English way of life. We know it exists. We don't know what constitutes that way. We know the word, we know the phrase English way of life. We don't understand in a meaningful way what that way is, what that procedure and direction is. We don't know how to enact and participate in that way. How do we do it? How do we get back into it if we've left some of these practices behind? That's, that's the essence of what we're trying to get at. We may have implicitly known the direction, the procedure and the direction, but we don't know how to walk back into that direction if we've been walked out of it, even if we have the echoes of the value hierarchy still nested in our unconscious. The English value hierarchy, the terms we use to define them are equivocal and they're invalid. Equivocal meaning the term means different things to different people. The construct doesn't actually map the actual, doesn't actually map the phenomena, the behavioral pattern that makes up English way. Their definitions are woolly and oblique, but they map something that doesn't constitute Englishness. And the portion of the English way we do still enact is implicit. It's like the water is to the fish in the river. It's always been in the water, yet it uses the water to swim. But he doesn't see it because he's always inside of the water. We're inside the English way. Unlike other cultures, where our culture has, is like a tree. No one invented it. No one wrote a constitution. No one explicated it. It's like the meaning of the word constitution. Constitution used to mean, in the English sense, is what makes you up just how it the feeling of what feels right that's what common law is all that stuff that's what those things are it's the felt sense of what's right in the value hierarchy intuited the second conceptual problem is we have the source materials that nest or house the english value hierarchy that house the psychotechnologies the practices we have all those things the trouble is all the interpretations we have of those things that pervade the media that come from a materialist ontology from the academy using reductivist tools. And you need to use non-reductivist scientific tools if you want to understand or better understand these phenomena and map them. In English tradition, and tradition in general, culture in general is a non-reductive phenomena. It emerges. Englishness and the value hierarchy emerges. It is inappropriate to use those tools to uncover interpretation. It makes it useless. The traditions themselves were constructed and emerged, mostly emerged from a symbolic medieval or dark age ontology, meaning, say, the Green Knight and King Arthur, medieval people didn't read it to figure out its literal meaning. 
or to look behind history to find a history in the third person scientifically. They read it to try to figure out its use to them, how they could use it in their lives. The people that authored the, the source materials spoke a different language to us. And if you don't have their ontology, you can't decode it and extract the psychotechnology, meaning procedures you, procedural knowledge you can actually use from traditional source materials, like King Arthur and the Green Knight, like Robin oral tradition, like the ritual of longbow practice. When I say psychotechnology, what do I mean? Picture a tribe on a river. They can't swim, they have to cross the river to hunt and survive. Someone invents and engineers a boat. That is a technology. That technology is in the mind. It's made of mind material. The procedure of operation and the procedure of actually creating the thing, but it's also made of wood material. The thing you operate in the river. A psychotechnology is the same. It's just as real. It's made of mind material, just like the boat, but its domain of operation is in the mind, not the river. And examples of that are meditation, the alphabet, but also you can have things outside of it, like the rosary, for instance, that is a procedure, yet it uses the beads, but it's not operated in it. It's still operating on the mind itself, even though it has an, a physical aid outside of it. Now, in implicit psychotechnology, we don't know it. It's in the unconscious. It operated behind the scenes. Say you're in another village, basically surrounded by forests. In that village, kids die in the forest, even though they're told it's dangerous. They die. Nothing can be done about it. Over time, over the decades, eventually a story emerges in the tavern called Red Riding Hood about a wolf who dresses like a grandmother to try feast on a young girl. And the story spreads around. People enjoy it. It has a emotive. It's significant to them for some reason they perhaps don't understand. Kids start dying less in the forest. The kids survive because they imitated implicitly the procedural knowledge in the narrative of Red Riding Hood. It had taught them procedural knowledge, unbeknownst to them, that gave them a survival advantage. Unbeknownst to them, their problem has been solved by this psychotechnology, this narrative. It survives because it has survival advantage for the person, so the story survives. By abandoning it, the problems it solves reemerge. The dragons reemerge to breathe fire at us and kill us these implicit psychotechnologies, and of course there are some implicit psychotechnologies, and we know we've abandoned most of them, what problems have emerged that they solved? Because you don't know what they were, just like those villages. A psychotechnology can be a ritual, a story, a piece of literature, it can have external aids, but the operating procedure is in the mind. The problem is in the psyche that it's, it's a solution for. It's doing something to the psyche, even if it has a physical product outside of it. For instance, say the longbow, that can have implicit effects that we don't know did something to us that cultivated our value hierarchy. That was a practice that was across all of Engl Englandum, all of the realm, all of English culture. Everyone did it, as we know from tribal cultures. It's something that makes us uniquely human to be able to project. The Neanderthals couldn't throw stuff. And the arrow is a higher order level of that, to be able to do it. Even more so with the longbow, because you don't even, like you aim, but you become part of the thing. Like you see with the longbow, people step into it and release it. So now we understand that I can move on. I don't sound like a madman. Like, what's he talking about? Psychotechnology. What's he talking about? It's, what is this, Starcraft? Psychos? Like, no. Now you know what it is. It's a very real thing. Meditation's a real thing. Prayer's a real thing. Symbols are real things. Oh, that's just the subjective, guys. That's not real. That's just in the mind. No, it's real. The other half of the problem is curatorial and cultivation. Firstly, nobody is armed with, no content makers in this space are armed with the appropriate criterion to curate source materials laden with the English value hierarchy. They don't have a curation procedure to do that, a valid one. English content makers, because they don't have the criteria and the value criteria, and they end up promoting ways and creeds that don't actually constitute Englishness, thinking they do. And that degenerates the conditions that 
allowed us to flourish in the first place. The, these creeds and ideologies are di divergent from what actually constitutes Englishness, which isn't, isn't an ideology. It's a way, it's an emergent way of life. It's not constructed just in the conscious propositional minds. The other problem is there aren't any English content makers or content makers in this space that have the appropriate symbolic and non-reductive analytical tools, not just curatorial, analytical tools to go in and explicate from source materials psychic technology that would work to be able to read them to get a proper interpretation to actually use them they don't have the analytical tools to unpack and get at it to explicate it in the appropriate way where it's useful where it's symbolic of what it actually is in the actual in act in the world also to once they explicate it to make content that is then value laden with the value hierarchy to cultivate the value hierarchy by creating original content that's imbued with it. No one in this space, this English traditional space, has the symbolic ontology that's required to speak the symbolic language, to unpack the symbolic understanding. And as a consequence, the audience, what's perpetuated in them is by looking at their interpretations, by listening to these historians or whatever, what's perpetuated is uh, that ontology, a materialist ontologies. And a, a consequence of that is the audience is inhibited from understanding tradition and actually being able to use the psychotechnology in the works to be able to use the tradition to enact it to participate in it not just receive it and go oh now i know it as a proposition to participate in it they are inhibited from experiencing meaning and morale because of that before we go any further i should also define what a symbol is because it's very strange to people a symbol is a psychotechnology that expresses that's enacted to understand, reveal an unknown higher order concept, principle, or phenomena. That phenomena is understood through the enacting, the use of the symbol, saying it mediates between the unknown concept to explicate it to you. It's a thing you enact. Now we need to get away from the casual understanding of this word or how it's casually used. Say, for instance, the tradition of handing over a piece of turf at the sale of an estate. People refer to that as symbolic. That's not symbolic. That's that's semiotic. That's a sign. It doesn't have a intrinsic thing to do with the unknown estate. It's it just represents the estate. It's not an intricate part of it. it doesn't reveal anything about it. It just represents it. It's also useful to think about the railway worker, the badge they wear, the winged wheel. If I was to refer to that as symbolic, this badge. I would be saying that this badge has an it expresses something intricate about the railway system as a whole. And the truth is, of course, it's just a, it's a representation that, that, that marks out the railway employee. It's a symbol of nothing. The symbol is something that can reveal something to you that you can utilize. So a way of thinking of the symbol is to think about the scale of justice. You understand the scale of justice by understanding and using it, you use the psychotechnology in your mind, you picture it and you enact it, you're balancing, you might turn your head left to right. When you're enacting the symbol, it interacts with your cerebrum, which controls balance. So this, these other processes in you are being co-opted, are being utilized by this thing, and you enact it to understand the higher order concept of justice. What is justice? What do you do with the scale? Balancing. It's balancing what's fair, right? And look, I'm moving my hands while I'm talking about this. Say you're a judge, whatever. The more you enact the, that symbol, the more just you become, the more you have internalized the process of balancing and weighing. It's such a complex phenomena that that doesn't stop being useful. You don't just use it once and understand it. You think about it again until you fully internalize it. You internalize the symbol like in a conversation with a friend. You might be weigh the pros and cons for them. Well, Bob said this, but then Sally did that. And look, you turn your head left and right. Another way of understanding this is a, you think about the symbol like a x-ray lens you use the symbol of the scale you look through the symbol like you would look through a lens look through it beyond and by means of the lens to reveal the higher order concept of justice it's to reveal things about this complicated phenomena that is would otherwise be unknown to you just like when you use an x-ray lens machine to reveal to you what you would otherwise not see the bones inside a body once there's a more efficient means, or once you have the, pro the propositional explication of something, it becomes a dead symbol and just becomes a sign of the thing. It's no longer pregnant with meaning.
because it's not used anymore. It just represents what you already have elsewhere in your, or what you think you already have elsewhere in your psyche. What is explicated in a more thorough way elsewhere in the psyche of the judge. He has the explicated massive understanding of what justice is, so the symbol just becomes a sign for that. You can kill a symbol too, right? And for instance, let's look at the, the cross. People say, oh, the cross is a symbol for divine love. Well, no, you've just made the cross a sign because divine love, the concept you've got of a divine love, the, the words, explicated words, are the better means of explaining divine love. The cross, as church fathers would say, transcends just divine love. It expresses all sorts of higher order phenomena, has all sorts of meanings. A symbolic attitude can actually kill a symbol and make it a sign instead. Even if you just think it isn't or think it doesn't work, it becomes a sign for something you think is better explicated either elsewhere in your psyche or externally, even when it's not. So that's what we've done with the materialist ontology. We've killed all the symbols in large parts, yet there's this whole spectrum of symbols that better map these higher order phenomena like the cross itself. So the problem is twofold, conceptual and cultivation and curation. The conceptual solution is what I call Greenwood Lab, Greenwood Metalaw. Greenwood Lab's overarching mission is to explicate the English value hierarchy, to model its structural functional organization, to validate it nomologically. The first goal is to create a new lexicon to express and define the English value hierarchy, creating new terminology, but also a system of symbols to express it, to be utilized, to help people understand what it is. So it's like a new language theory description to make explicit what's particular to what's distinct about the English value hierarchy. So the second goal is to reconstruct the value hierarchy's process of emergence, its causes and consequences. What are the things that enable it? What are the things that cultivate it? And what are the conditions that it brings about? The third goal is to explicate, to make explicit the psychotechnologies, the practices, the rituals from the English tradition itself, the narrative order, the mythos, and confirm experimentally with researchers what the utility beneficial effects are for the individual. Then once confirmed, organize those practices into a system of practices that integrates with the value hierarchy to promote flourishing within and of English culture, of the Englishman and the individual. So the fourth goal is to formalize and further develop the curation and analysis tools that we already have. So researchers and content makers can utilize them to curate source materials, to extract psychotechnology from curated source materials so they can make content value laden with the English value hierarchy. So as we talked about, the problem earlier being that people don't have the tools to do it, but also a pedagogy to teach that knowledge to the general audience itself so they can see and understand it and do it in culture. So not just a high-flying academic set of research tools, but both. The final goal is to establish a fellowship in this research project of researchers and content makers from the audience bottom up to participate in the project itself, to found their own branches of the project, to light a fire under this thing, to test different practices, to be the researchers that verify the phenomenological effects of this stuff. Not just me, I don't have time. I can't do this myself. It's just, I'm one part of this. And that doesn't mean you have to be some academic. That would be fine, but it, it uh, just volunteers, a voluntary fellowship of people that are willing to dedicate themselves and, and also to, towards the goal of this project. It's a prior to doing any of this. People talk about, oh, let's protect and defend our way of life. Yeah, that comes next. But the first, you need the tools. First, you need to concretize what it is. What it is really, though, what it is really, not a bullshit ideology, but what, as it emerges, not your idea of what it should be, but what is out of the mythos, because mythos isn't written by one person. The mythos and tradition it's of everyone. It's not about their ego and their personal desires. It's literally the people as a whole. It's like the word king in a way. English word king means son of the kin. And our culture, our mythos, is the son of the kin. And that's what we're trying to explicate. The son of the kin, as in the spirit of the kin. The value hierarchy. To make that concrete, explicit, ready to use for the general audience. Ready to use for the people and have that pedagogy and all of that in our hands so we have weapons and armor 
We have the way, we have the procedures, we have the direction. We need only cultivate it and enact it then. It's inevitable. It is literally inevitable that this is to be done. Ultimately, this conceptual solution is a tool. It's a research tool. It's a pedagogic tool. It's a thing to use. But on its own, it's only a propositional description of the phenomenon. It's not the phenomenon itself. It can only be understood by enacting what we uncover. Like you have the theory, you read it, you don't possess it. Culture is to be enacted. So that's why the other part of the project is cultivation. By necessity, it has to have a cultivation part of people actually using it, content being made, and people participating in it. Otherwise, it is only ever just a theory. Only ever just a proposition explicating this stuff in the value hierarchy is only ever going to be a description of things which can't be possessed just as propositions. As cognitive science helps us to understand, you don't possess certain types of knowledge by having a propositional theoretical description of it. So why or how does Greenwood Lab solve the conceptual problem? Or why is this necessary to actually do this? Think about our way of life or the English way of life as a invisible castle. That castle is generates everything, the conditions of our flourishing. If it dies, we're dead. There's an enemy marching across a field, burning everything in its path. They're going to achieve their objective either way. They just have to burn everything. We, on the other hand, need to stand on the walls of this invisible castle that represents our way to enact it, enact the way to defend it. The trouble is we only know the rough vicinity of these walls and different factions of our army disagree on what is and isn't a wall. So <laughs> that's the situation we find ourselves in. We don't know what constitutes this way of life. We don't know where the walls are. They're invisible. We know it exists. We know the rough vicinity of it. We don't know what the wall's made of. We don't know the procedures to enact that value hierarchy, that way to, to grow it that reinforce it. We don't know how to build castle walls. So what happens is we end up defending the status quo, the ground we're all standing on instead of the actual castle walls. And we have no vision because we don't understand the narrative tradition, the narrative order, right? The point, why we even build castles. What, what, why build castles? What's their purpose? The telos, which is part of the way, its direction and the procedure. And we don't understand the traditional languages, the symbolic language that the tradition's written in and the interpretations are wrong, like I mentioned. Meaning we don't understand the old castle wall plans. Greenwood Lab as a whole, its purpose is to make visible the castle walls to make it visible and ready to use, the procedures, everything, concrete, so we can see it, grab it, utilize it, to speak its language. A summary of the research methods we intend to use is we're going to use the nomological next. And by nomologically, I mean multi-method, multi-trait construct validation, which is you're using evidence from divergent fields, methods those sciences use, and the fields themselves being divergent. Buttresses is your case, meaning like this Coke can, I hold it, my sense of touch, my sight, my, the coldness, the heat, the temperature reveal, okay, I have a, this can exists, right? All the senses together form a nomological net to prove it. So that's part of a method of the case to verify it. Or we're going to exact tools from non-reductive sciences. We're going to use these theories, use these non-reductive sciences as theory metaphors to frame what we're trying to do and use those methods to, as best we can, as, as is possible, to verify the models we're making, right? To make it robust as possible. You want to map what really exists. We're not trying to create something. Form, we're going to use empirical evidence as far as that's possible. Get quantitative data to back up qualitative arguments. So this map is as accurate as possible. So it actually is, as far as possible, the value hierarchy itself. First, I have to unpack what the value hierarchy is, what a value hierarchy is, and what a value is, that enables me to explain what effects are going on. Like how the show and the different things I'm doing and we're doing are interacting with the value hierarchy to impel the effects that they're impelling, the different effects that, that, I'm, that I list in the summary. So following that, I'll demonstrate the market opportunity, why the market's hungry for this crop, what the situation is that has presented us with this opportunity, like the parallel economy, going through all those manner of things. Then I'll outline the Greenwood content membership platform, its objectives, its mission statement, 
of the wider, the whole company, the whole project, and its core goals, then I will describe why it's so competitive. So first, I'm going to talk about the Greenwood Show. I've got a link that you can look at, and then the sort of glowing audience feedback. It's a rough outline of it. You're not going to understand what exactly is going on until we unpack the value hierarchy, which I'll do next. In preparation, first what we do is I use our curation procedure to locate the appropriate source materials that are nested with our value hierarchy that are value laden. So the second step of preparation, what I do is I use our analysis procedure to extract out the essence of the value behaviors that I've broken down the procedural layer of what's going on in the narrative because as we know a narrative is a procedure and its outcome i'll break all that down into its individual steps to extract out the essence of what what the function of that procedure is what it does in a holistic sense outside of the individual actions present that and so i can use it as a tool to compare it to modern english behaviors so what that does is it places the audience in literally like teleologically in the story rather than being an outside widget the world watcher looking in because the value hierarchy is nested in our unconscious our behaviors reflect what you see in that once you get to the essence of it so i make i compare and contrast those two things together so people can understand their place in this wider epoch spanning tradition so then what i'll do is i'll present a nomological argument and present scientific evidence empirical evidence to satisfy the modern empirical mind once that skeptical mind is abated and it's satisfied let's say they approach it and see it for its true value its true utility it gets rid of the pre-judgment of that scientism materialism of tradition to just simply see it as its utility value because there's no desire here to do anything to convince people of traditional ideology it's not even ideology it's just this is your tradition that emerged here's how you use it here's its utility simply but to get there you have to walk them back from the scientism. So then the sixth step, what I'll do is I'll, I'll promote and, and push active participation by, by comparing this practice of psychotechnology with other psychotechnologies and practices people are more used to in modern life where we know the effects of them. So they see, okay, this has been used. This is similar to this practice. It's actively done right now. I can do that, right? So in the contrast with that modern practice, that modern thing, this traditional practice, and also listing out the uses or demonstrating the historical evidence of its use and utility back when it was uh, formulated. And then lastly, presenting a symbolic ontology, walking back from materialist ontology by comparing the symbols that we, we extract out from the traditional work with a general European and Dark Age, medieval and Dark Age ontologies, Christian ontology and Dark Age ontology, decodes how the people who made or spoke the oral tradition or wrote the tradition, how they saw the world to understand the different symbols and their connection with those two things. So people can start seeing the wider patterns and how it all interconnects. But that's just a rough outline of it. You're not going to understand what exactly is going on until we unpack the value hierarchy, which I'll do next. So values are categories of the unconscious which emote what should be done, what should be chosen, what should be rejected. That's manifested in feeling, in an impulsion or emotive data. To value something is a statement about certain contents of the psyche, the unconscious being energetic or strong towards the thing in question in an objectionable or a sympathetic or recommendable manner so good or bad so the values that concern us are that which makes us distinct as a people that that which is at the top of the hierarchy you can't choose these values that are basically absorbed in the childhood development stage from father to son piaget demonstrated by piaget the definition of a culture in the anthropological meaning of the word is a people's hierarchy of ways their procedural hierarchy a person is constituted of a behavioral hierarchy. An individual is. That's all we know of what a person is, that hierarchy. That's what a character is. In drama, in all those things, it's always actions, a pattern of action in the world. A people, then, is best defined as a personality, a hierarchy of ways, a behavioral hierarchy, just like a person. But it's overall, in a culture, it is a person. Think about the king. Think about... That's a national personification, a personification of England's culture, for instance, right? Is 
a locus of those behavioral patterns of the greatest heroes of of a culture amalgamated together in, to form one personification. That's the best way to define a people. Everything, all culture, ultimately breaks down to the procedural hierarchy in episodic form, in procedural form, and in semantic form. Stored in semantic memory, procedural memory, and episodic memory. Or in the representations of the procedural hierarchy in tradition. Literature is a uh, episodic knowledge, and with, nested within it is procedural knowledge of the characters in it. A narrative is a procedural, is a procedure and its outcome. It's the character's action and the outcome of that action. So it has the procedural knowledge nested in it. So with that in mind, what values really refer to is that personality pattern, that procedural hierarchy, the ways that we most object to and most commend, and not logically in the mind, that, that, that the hierarchy most objects and commends. Like the value structure in the psyche is one thing, but it, it, what triggers it is a procedural pattern. So in essence, that's what it is. A, a behavioral pattern is the value. It's the valued thing that you can locate, and that is stored in the narrative order. We can get at that to understand what they are. The value hierarchy then amounts to the patterns of action of our greatest heroes, or the greatest heroes of a culture, value patterns that prove crucial to the survival of a culture and to its flourishing. Morality is an emotive impulse. There was a Moses in every culture, and if you can't establish the historical existence of such a man, then there are the laws, the moral laws, right? And what are those laws? Those laws are another emotive impulse. They are merely a propositional rendering of the value hierarchy. That value hierarchy begins as procedural knowledge, as adaptation, raw adaptation on the ground of an individual. That's transmitted via imitation, father to son. Then it comes to be expressed, explicated, made more explicit into episodic representation in the narrative. That narrative, over the passage of time, comes to be explicated into a moral code, comes to be represented in the story of Moses, then is explicated into the moral code by philosophers or theologians, for instance. For the already established tradition, it comes from the value hierarchy first. But when a new hierarchy, when a new value emerges, it begins with the heroic adaptation on the ground. A narrative, like the Moses story, is a procedure and its outcome. It stores the implicit procedural knowledge of historically determined adaptation to the unknown of a hero. It is, in turn, a psychotechnology that can be used to unpack that procedural knowledge of morality. It comes to be represented in episodic memory, in semantic and procedural memory. So it's not just in the narrative, it's actually in us as well. The narrative order then, the mythos of England, let's say, the traditional source materials then contain the structure of historically determined procedural knowledge, the value, the things we value, the value hierarchy, in more explicit form in a mode we can understand, in something we can access and unpack. Myth-hero narratives like the Robin Hood ballads, the oral tradition, let's say, have no single author. They have to transmit through hundreds of humans to get to us. They are subject to selective forces, evolutionarily. So over time, it distills the utility of the procedural knowledge that's nested in that particular hero's tradition, from the oral tradition. If they work for the human who imitates them on the ground, they're given a survival advantage, and that branch of the story survives. If it doesn't work when it's imitated, if it fails to manifest the story outcome on the ground, then that branch of the story dies. Or he, if he's able to, adapts to the situation and returns to the tavern to tell the tale and adapts it based on that, distilling the narrative and making it a more generalizable truth. So it's like a feedback loop. It works like a Bayesian feedback loop and updates the whole amalgam of the myth hero over time. As you see in most oral tradition, the Bible included, is that over time the truth becomes more potent, distilled down into more generalizable form that works in every situation. The stories are acted out in the empirical world, often implicitly, right? The changes, the slight adjustments over time are updated and distilled the narrative's general utility uh, as they're retold in the pub. And so what that means is that the older a tradition is, the less individual artists have to do with something, loops this has gone through, the more we can have confidence in the strength and generalizability of that truth, especially the oral tradition. So when you look at the oldest traditions, they're full 
They're gold mines, a magnitude that we don't realize. They are untapped oil, especially if the tradition's implicit. You're not doing it thinking that, oh, I'm going to imitate Robin Hood when I go into the forest. In real time, your brain is just operating based on your general remembrance of the story, and you make those adjustments to the behaviors. Branch that you tell in the story when you go back to the tavern, you're not thinking, what happened to me on the ground? You just tell the tale based on how you feel out what feels legitimate. Your understanding of how honest it is to how people behave. So you make that slight adjustment implicitly though. We may have forgotten these narratives, we may have never understood their crucial function in society, but the echo of their value hierarchy is still nested in our unconscious. We'll still respond to them when it's like a secret only fire can tell. That echo is in essence why our content is so compelling. That's in essence what our content takes advantage of. So now we understand the value hierarchy, let's explore five different effects, five different reasons why the content impels such a response in the audience that we see demonstrated in the comments. All these effects aren't achieved in every program, but this I've hypothesized in general the list of them. And over all of them, these are the, the effects that the analysis and presentation aim to achieve. The first effect of the content manifests in the audience is what I call the integration effect. To the audience describe when they, after they watch our content, the sense of being told something they already knew, that they felt on a, a different level of understanding, followed by a feeling of meaning and morale. Now, cognitive science can help us here. They describe four levels of understanding or knowing, which is propositional knowledge, which is we understand is everything we read, all that sort of stuff, perspectival knowledge, participatory knowledge, and procedural knowledge, stored in semantic, episodic, and in... Uh, procedural memory. So people have a sense of their cultural identity on the participatory and procedural level of their knowledge or understanding. They, they sense it. So this sense that the audience described, this sense is emotive data, like we talked about before, emotive data from the unconscious value hierarchy. Just like recognizing a face in the crowd is, the sense of recognizing a face in the crowd is intellectual data from cognition. Now, our content, what it's doing is, it's integrating the emotive with the intellectual, integrating the episodic and procedural levels of their knowledge, understanding, with their propositional understanding. It's integrating their emotive, unconscious structure with their conscious, intellectual structure, their ideas of their identity with their actual identity, what they share implicitly with people yet they can't articulate into words. This integration of the conscious and the unconscious generates that morale response. To reiterate, we are articulating for the audience what they fe always felt their commonalities are, their felt sense of their commonalities, and articulating that for them in the intellect. So the next effect the content manifests is what I call the participation effect, the teleological effect, is that what we do when we unpack these narratives and render them in such a way that the essence, like the essence of the value hierarchy in the source materials, uh, comparing with the same behavioral patterns in the modern Englishman, is we essentially we're putting a round box in a round hole. It actively places the audience as a participant in the story, as, some, as something that you're part of, not a outside watcher or a receiver, but it's like, no, I am of this. This is my story too. As a consequence of that, being placed in the story and being uh, contrasted with historical figures from the myth mythos and locating them within themselves and demonstrated that they are of this same thing. As a consequence of that, they're given a greater sense of their place and their point, a teleology, a why. They're in the story. And that is energizing. That's impelling. The next effect I would describe is the active effect, the procedural effect, is that while legacy media seeks to turn the audience and keep the audience as a passive receiver of tradition, we promote or we push active use and flourishing. Modernity's centralization of folk narrative and storytelling seeks dependence. It's turned us into bit players in other people's story, which is alien to our natural condition. We see Robin Hood as a character to be projected at us. The truth of it is he was a character to be enacted and imitated. Storytelling and drama were done by everyone on the local level. It's only recently that we've been sort of propagandized to believe or propagandized into this passivity, 
Heroes like Robin Hood, they emerged from the tradition. They evolved in a participatory fashion. People imitated and used these characters. They, every May Day, people played them. Everyone knew them. They told the stories themselves. They were active in it. They spoke it in their mouths. The words are supposed to be spoken. That's their use and utility. So it's completely alien to us, this situation. We invert that and try to offer it in a way that people, for them to use themselves as symbols, as psychotechnologies. We enable the audience to use tradition as it was intended, as it evolved, like for the, re the function that it evolved for, to know their people's story by participating in that story, by telling it. This is buttressed by cognitive science as well, as you have to tell them, move the mouth, have to evolve the body, because you can't have procedural knowledge until you imitate it, know how to do it, and it's linked up with actually doing, actually doing Robin Hood, actually speaking and telling the story yourself. You know it by telling the story, just like Richard Feynman said about physics. It's like, you don't really know until you teach, can teach something, you don't really know it. Another effect the content manifests is the, what I call the uh, utility renovelization effect. We think we understand tradition. All we really understand is a shitty straw man that is obscuring the actual function and use of that tradition. This is the materialist, literalist illusion, which, is, which pervades and was perpetuated by the academy, the institutions, what we do when we unpack the thing and explain it in scientific terms, the utility of tradition again, is we remove this sort of skeptic mind. We satisfy it by explaining it in scientific terms and presenting evidence that shows its actual utility. And essentially, by doing that, it's like walking back at that materialist ontology. It's a reevaluation of the of the true value of the tradition, right? So all the pre-established persuasion of the materialist ontology that people have of these traditions perhaps that they thought they already knew that straw man is pulled away and that makes it novel that renovelization is what happens when you make the old new again you're removing a, a incorrect interpretation and what's revealed to you is something that's useful all that stuff is now novel all that stuff you get for free. And basically what that means is we get the developmental costs for free as well. Like where you have to make new content, you're using old things and showing them in their true light. It impels you towards the content. It's why people enjoy it. Because it's, ah, it's a revelation of the truth. And that leads me to the final effect, which I would call the ontological revelation effect, right? And so what we're doing here is like little by little, episode by episode as we explain more of the symbolic ontology what's being revealed to the audience is the interconnections between all the different symbolic patterns in the content in the culture because we're using fundamental the fundamental language of it which pervades all of it of english culture and the fundamental values so as we do that it's like a good twist in a movie like what is that impelling force you get when that is revealed it's a slow burn twist essentially over the course of the whole group of content and what that does is impel the audience towards it because it's revealing things to you about things you thought you already knew all your life right things you walked past the king all the different things of culture that you have become known to you but you never actually understood this is what happened is because they become just dead signs but the true meaning and utility and use of them and when we represent this ontology it's it's, it's bringing you into a worldview that it's like putting on x-ray glasses, right, from the uh, They Live movie. You're seeing things. Ah, oh, okay, this is what it is. This is the use of it, utility and symbolically. Because all this stuff formed in a different ontology. So across all the episodes, that's what happens. A slow burn revelation that makes the content more impelling. When you get a new idea, when you understand something, that's a positive morale boost. Same with the lower levels of knowing that cognitive science reveals to us. Perspectival knowledge. You have to have the change of perspective to gain the effects of that, the benefits and the, uh, and the phenomenological effects, the, the, the morale boost and the emotion that that provides. So all these effects aren't achieved in every program, but this, I've hypothesized in general the list of them. And it should become clear now why this content is more competitive. Why? Because other people aren't doing it and catering for it directly. Over all of them, these are the, the effects that the analysis and presentation aim to achieve. Let's talk about the market opportunity and the wider opportunities this project presents. English tradition 
English narrative tradition in particular, has never been explicated as a pedagogy, as a teaching tool, like Bible study has. It's always functioned behind the scenes. Its narratives were never intended to instruct. They were spread for reasons other than that. They were spread for pleasure, uh, for instance. What that means is, because they function behind the scenes, because they are implicit, that it's essentially untapped oil. And the narrative tradition and the wider mythos, English tradition, is pregnant with usable, functional psychotechnology and practices that we can explicate and turn into a pedagogy. For all intents and purposes, it's pregnant with new inventions, just begging to be explicated and utilized. What's more, that untapped oil is inaccessible to competitors, so it's, it has at least an initial defensibility. Because that oil is considered by them or it's enforced by institutions as a taboo, just considered to be useless because they see it from a materialist, literalist ontology. So it just looks useless to them. It just looks like literature. Some of you might think or say, or some people might think or say that none of that matters, that none of that doesn't matter that there's an opportunity there, that the institutions have the high ground, is that no one's going to care and no one's going to be able to notice because they're pointed in one direction. My response to that would be, that high ground is a grift. It's a Potemkin's village, and here's why. The communications technology centralized the distribution of meat and creation, essentially, of media in a handful of companies. Also, the centralization of institutions and the academy standardized the interpretation of English tradition with that materialist, literalist interpretation, the ontology, through a system of incentives and rewards. This centralization made them ideal targets for Marxist occupation, neo-Marxist occupation, which we know has happened already, the long march on the institutions, that's over. But with technology putting broadcast equipment in everyone's home has led to the emergence of a dissident media which has spent the last 10 years red-pilling the audience, revealing the propaganda and lies of those centralized media, legacy media and the institutions. And the consequences of that is that trust in those institutions, especially now, is at an all-time low. The validation of those things, even the Oscars, the BAFTAs, award systems, these enforcement structures and incentives, the value of those things, because they've diminished their trust, the occupying forces has diminished and destroyed the trust of the legacy media and the institutions. The value of their validation of people and theories is non-existent for a large portion of, of the audience. So the stage essentially is set for, that's why it's a Potemkin's village, the stage is set for the entrenched position, the entrenched interpretation of this English tradition to be subverted completely and, and supplanted by its true understanding. The framework that enforces the narrative or enforces the, this false understanding of English tradition to be bypassed and subverted. People don't value the doctorate from whatever university. They value what works or the, or the established biography of the person they're following or the company they're following, the individuals. So for the first time, we, we can now go directly to the audience without seeking the validation of captured institutions and captured elites. We aren't burdened by gatekeepers. We aren't burdened by middlemen anymore. We don't have to buy into the system of it. We just have to be right. We have to be correct. We have to give utility to people. Like now more than ever, the audience is seeking utility and truth, authenticity over flashy production value and statuettes and doctorates before your name. That's what they want. That's what they're looking for, a, a true relationship. It's clear they want a relationship with content makers directly. And they, the legacy media still push this idea of them as fans to be worshipped. They seek to create that system of, of a pantheon to be worshipped that's just not the reality of the situation. They're friends of theirs, in essence. And that's what we promote, is participation and active relationship, because that's what the project essentially is. It's trying to help people. It's not trying to create passive, dependent observers living their lives through someone else watching a TV screen. No. This situation, too, both lowers our marketing costs and raises theirs, lowers their potency, the potency of their content, and raises ours, lowers their trust and authenticity and raises ours, if it continues. As a lot of people, I'm sure, have noticed, a parallel economy is emerging. 
and the time is ripe for a project like this to join that economy. And the situation is, too, there's an emergent market segment that I'll call English value-laden content. That market segment was created by propagandizing that content and no longer providing for the audience needs, so much so that what they gained in flashy effects and high production value, they're no longer enough to compensate for the demoralizing effects of them attacking and inverting our value hierarchy in their narrative content. And what illustrates that is large sections of the audience, the audience would rather watch a lone YouTuber tell a story that's actually imbued with their values than watch a Star Wars trilogy, the flashy effects that vilifies and inverts their values and destroys the characters they love. So a market that's thought stagnant actually proves ripe for disruption because of this. They're creating the opportunity by what they've done. And you can see it maps perfectly on to the woke occupation of these companies, the different things like the 2016 uh, Marvel Comics slump or the destruction of their sales, 2016 Netflix subscriber loss. You've also got the, I think it's 2018 um, Star Wars ride slump and, and the, the figurines, they tried to merge two departments to hide the, the loss of profits, but it's there when you look in the data. And also when you look at the sales data and the survey data of the Netflix, of Netflix, is that the audience prefers to watch decades old unpropagandized content than what's coming out now. So what that all amounts to is that going woke indeed does mean going broke. Well, as long as, they, as long as the value hierarchy is still within the audience, it does. The longer this goes on, the greater our competitive advantage and the demand for this type of content will be. And especially because it's so hard to actually recognize and be particular about it. Hollywood used to do it just by scattergun. They didn't do it by being able to recognize it. It's only now that we have the procedures to be able to identify it, to be really particular about it. I mean, that's all else being equal. Of course, you need storycraft. But because of what they've done, all those barriers are much lower. That You don't need the fidelities that people will just sit and listen to Count Dankula tell a story on YouTube or a storyteller. They're, ha they're happy to do that. If content aligns with the value hierarchy, all else being equal, the more compelling and impelling it is. As I say, it's, it's this, the, the need is not being provided for, therefore it's a new need that needs to be satiated in the audience. The overarching mission of the Greenwood Project as a whole long-term ultimately is to establish a content platform, a membership content platform that supplants the monopoly that the institutions and the legacy media have over the interpretation of English tradition and literature of their interpretation and definition of English virtues and values. Mission complete for this looks like if an Englishman, an American, wants to understand the fundamental of, of the value hierarchy, of his culture, he doesn't go to the BBC anymore, he doesn't go to Oxford, he comes to us, he comes to our platform to understand it, the general audience. So the core objectives, goals, intentions of this project are five, five different core goals. The first is to host and establish a system, an ecosystem of psychotechnology and practices that the English can use to cultivate meaning and amplify their common bonds. What that means is the goal is to return to the common people the means by which they can participate actively in their tradition as it was evolved for. The second objective is to establish, to host and establish a system by which the membership can self-organize to participate in the project directly, to make their own content and a system by which stuff is upvoted onto the front page and it's, it's put onto the Greenwood show and Greenwood content. Talent is promoted from within the audience by the audience itself. Set up a system where they can participate, also contribute to the research. And the reason why I say make content is that really matters. That, oh, well, not everyone can be a content maker. Sure, that's fine. But this stuff was participated in by everyone by telling the story, by speaking about it. So the words come through your mouth. That generates phenomenological effects. So the intent of the project is, is to have that element, that self-organization where people are promoting from within and generating a distributed cognition to light a fire under this project itself, but also to found new arms of it, go off and do their own things with regard to it, to inspire that. So the third goal is to educate the membership in the symbolic worldview, also in our analytical and curation tools. So they can utilize them to participate in the tradition primarily, but also to make content themselves. 
So it's a pedagogy, as we all learn together, to better understand the tradition. And the idea of that is to sort of empower the audience to empower the, the project itself. Ultimately, it is about that. The only reason this exists, I'm, do I'm doing this and putting all this effort into it, is to do my duty. The fourth goal is to establish a contributors portal, an intranet on the membership website, a place where we can train and collaborate with talented researchers and writers, editors, content makers, a place where like-minded uh, creators that are already in this space, but also people recruited from the audience can train and trade tools, trade reserve information, reserve knowledge to create network effects around similar projects. The fifth goal is to promote in-person clubs, essentially Greenwood Order, fellowships where people self-organize to participate directly in the traditional framework to towards self-betterment, towards aspiration and flourishing within an English cultural framework, within an English traditional framework where they are testing these psychotechnologies. They're going out into the world and living the tradition, amplifying their common bonds, reporting back a place where people participate directly, essentially as researchers, if you like, testing out the psychotechnology to understand their, their phenomenological effects, but also a place where people can use directly what they're uncovering, not just to watch a show. So why is this approach uniquely competitive? Why is it uniquely fitted to solving this problem? The English language arrives to us value laden, is laden with a value hierarchy. The words and works of Shakespeare, the ballads of Robin Hood, the mythos of King Arthur, the language, it's, that is deeply nested in the language. This work is tapping into that, tapping into a, in, an English disused intrapersonal neural network, like unlocking, like having a key and unlocking a giant underground tunnel network that they're not able to use or they're not using. Competitors either take a generalized approach or they use Christianity or they use Neoplatonism or a general scattergun of Western ideology or Western culture that isn't as uniquely fitted to the tradition and the value hierarchy within the audience. They are disincarnate pieces of a wider emerging phenomena that is English culture. It's like Englishness isn't the sum of its parts, but if you use it all together, you are you are hitting, you are, you are, it's like I said earlier, it's, it's, it's a round box for a round hole. Another point is that propaganda, woke narratives are in essence lies. They aren't fitted for reality on the ground. So when they're imitated, when you say you watch a woke movie or whatever, when you try to imitate that in the real world, those narratives, those the procedural information in the narrative, you imitate that, it fails to manifest the outcome it presents in the story. So over time, that's a negative feedback loop. It's draining the life force of the people that use it. On the other hand, when we present the nested traditional procedural knowledge from out of the English narrative order, from, from these traditional source materials, representing something that is adapted for, that adapted with English terms, English language, all these things. Are, it's fitted for those things, right? It reflects the truth on the ground. So when using that, a positive feedback loop, it's the opposite. It's that, so you're imitating things and you are actually more competitive because it's reflecting closer of reality on the ground. If a narrative's procedural knowledge works when you imitate it, you don't waste cognitive resources adapting in real time to a situation that you didn't predict because you used bad information out of propaganda. There's a difference between tradition and propaganda. It's not an ideology, it emerged to an environment People didn't intend it to be used as instruction. And so this truth, this truth effect means also, it's like in a world of lies, in a world of propaganda, the truth is like a revolution. It's like having the transmitter tuned to the particular frequency of the audience. But also because it's the truth on the ground, it's like having the signal, not the noise. It was subject to selective forces emerging in an English environment and adapted and is fitted to the rituals, the language, the ways that English culture is. So it, it is, of course, more likely to reflect truth on the ground. The longer and older a tradition, the more likely it is to be robust. This is more robust because it's gone through more loops. You move to propaganda, it's draining off you. That meme is consuming you. What we're trying to uncover is the thing that amplifies you, the thing that makes you, that, that, that enables you. 
when you start using it, it gives you a distributed, distributed powers you wouldn't otherwise have. So I'd also say that the solutions to a problem of nihilism in an English environment is, is probabilistically likely to have English parts. So you'll find parts of the solution at least in that environment. So in turn, arming the audience with English psychotechnology has a higher probability of being effective in against these degenerative forces of, of modern technology, but also propaganda growing in society. Inversely, if you use this psychotechnology, English psychotechnology in North Korea would likely get you killed. If you use North Korean psychotechnology as, as an individual in um, England, in the Anglosphere, it's not going to benefit you either. All these disincarnate pieces that one might say, oh, that is it, or it's just Christian, or it's just this, or it's just that, or it's Western philosophy, or whatever. Ultimately, Englishness, English culture, it's, it's the disincarnate pieces as they come together to generate emergent effects. It's their arrangement in the hierarchy that makes it something unique. But it's not just, oh, that value is Christian. It's where it is or how highly it's valued. It's, a, it's its arrangement that makes it unique and gives it unique effects and makes it distinct. And that's what gives Englishness its unique quality. So if you're looking for a solution in this environment, you need to take that into account. It's not the solution's not going to be using one piece of all these things. It's going to be understanding how it all fits together, how it all made, how it all worked before, not just grabbing one piece and saying, ah, oh, it's Christianity, ah, oh, it's Western philosophy that's going to solve it. Or at the least, it's not going to explain what's distinct about our way of life. And that's what people yearn for, those common bonds not just meaning, but also what is distinct about them. If you cherry pick different practices, ultimately they're not going to hold together. They may work individually, and meditation does, but parts of Buddhism of course work. They're not ultimately going to hold together in black swan events and with the disintegration effects of modern technology. The things that will are that which is connected to the value hierarchy, that which is the sacred, that's what people will look to in a crisis moment is what binds them together, what they share in common, not what will just work for them as individuals. The narrative order of a people, their mythos, the, the, gives the di otherwise disconnected practices their place where they're supposed to be used. It gives them their credibility, their authority. The narrative order unites and justifies. It, it valuates, it sanctifies the things. It tells you that's the thing you use. It gives you confidence. We shouldn't underestimate the importance of this effect, right? The, the highest levels of confidence and authority are connected to the sacred. Its names are our names. Its words are our words. That's what binds them together with the necessary strength to withstand discord. That's, that history is not just something written in a book. It's what generates the sacred. It's what created the valuation of the things in the first place. Plugging into that is is more robust for the future when people are looking for that that ultimate fundamental thing that they share in common when the dark tide comes what are they going to do they're going to look for the thing that shares their words they're going to look for the thing that shares their common history they're going to look for the thing that shares their values and virtues that's not just a historical point it's deeply in our psyche it's two millennia old Ultimately, it's that force that makes it so impelling for the Englishman, the Canadian, the Australian, the American, the New Zealander, which you can see in the comments. It's not just English people. It's all across English culture. And that energy and force makes this the most realistic, practical solution to these problems. Other things don't have that impelling force. They don't interact with the value hierarchy like this does. So I'll just quickly talk about our growth plan for the moment. So ultimately, our network effects derive from strategic alliances with uh, emerging creators in the scene and utilizing that to create um, content and cross promotion uh, and putting and building that into the assets like uh, Discord and the website to create a uh, cross promotional network. And, and with marketing and distribution, um, uh, the user base derives from advertisements, which we've tested um, using actually just pr the product. Instead of running it as an ad, it's been uniquely effective to target directly people in this space and run pre-roll ads on YouTube. And people expect an ad and they just get the content. <laughs> and that has, has a very high click-through rate. And so the strategy going forward is going to be using the the channels that have the highest click-through rate for targeted sponsorships and pay them directly, which is a more cost-effective way of doing that. 
but also as a means by which to generate the relationship going forward and recruit them into the network, this cross-promotional network, but also a collaborative network, and to utilize that and also utilize relationships we already have with uh, influencers in this space to make introductions, but also to make content that will be broadcast on both channels, which is, of course, is a, is a method that's normally used on, on platforms like YouTube to grow the audience. But ultimately, we also want to join the alternate influencer network by doing that and getting introductions by influencers we already know in this space. The self-organized uh, community of, of community creators and contributors on our own network platforms, but also on assets like Discord and utilizing that for also to for products that might be released and bits of content, books, ebooks to generate user reviews on these other platforms. But uh, those network effects rely on that. They rely on, on, on the, the uptake from the community to do that. And once it reaches a critical mass, we'll, we'll, we'll set itself off. And once the audience gets to a certain size, then that's incentivized from within. So we will incentivize the uptake of that with the audience, with, with promotions in the community, with community powers, but also other incentives to, to incentivize the creation of user-generated content and incentivize the uptake of the project and distribution of the project by bringing people into it. It's a populist project in that way. That's what we want to achieve, to have a groundswell around it and a groundswell around talent, upvoted talent from the community by the community. That's about everything I have to say about this. If you have any questions, send me an email on scott at greenwood.media. There's much more to this, but I'm not going to go to every aspect of the plan, of course, but look forward to hearing what you have to say about it. And you have, if you want to volunteer, there's going to be a Discord at uh, our link that if you want to participate in the project in any way, join it and let us know what kind of work you do or what you're interested in doing. Dare greatly to believe in the future of our tradition. This is a Kansas US story. It's a Kansas US value hierarchy ultimately that is it is the english value hierarchy that is under it all that's what i've come to see this project's inevitable it, it, it it's it's just you can, i can tell you can tell by the the audience response to it that this need is is going to be fulfilled one way or another and it's necessary too for our resilience and the culture that created freedom the culture that created all these things is safe if we only embrace it